0: Podcastle, special birthday episode 463 for April 1st, 2017, A Dozen by Dunsany, rated PG. Hello, and welcome back to Podcastle, where fantasy leads reality in a sexy, sexy tango. I'm your guest host and guest editor for this special birthday episode. Nine years ago on this day, Podcastle's very first episode aired, Peter S. Beagle's Come Lady Death, hosted by Hugo and Nebula award-winning Anne Leckie, and read by Paul Jenkins, and with one Rachel Swirsky as the podcast's editor. Have you heard this one? If not, I recommend you give it a listen and see how this all started off. Many things have changed over the years, but through it all, we have remained dedicated to sharing a wide-ranging and diverse gamut of fantasy stories week after week with our listeners. In putting this birthday episode together, I wanted to make it a family affair, so all the stories were chosen by then-current Podcastle staff, we've added a few since then, and read by either staff or long-term supporters and friends. Additionally, I have the pleasure of sharing host duties with two very special guests that I'll leave for a bit of a surprise. We've divided up the stories into three sections, so you can look forward to their introductions to section two and three. For those who don't know, Edward Plunkett was the 18th Baron of Dunsany, who lived between 1887 and 1957, and who published stories, novels, poetry, and plays under the name Lord Dunsany. He also worked with W.B. Yeats and Lady Gregory, and lived in what is possibly the oldest home in continual use in Ireland, as work on building Castle Dunsany was begun circa 1180. We have run several of his very short stories here on PodCastle, including one in today's collection, The Sphinx in Thebes, Massachusetts, which was our miniature episode 52, and you will likely hear more of Dunsany's stories in the future. However, as a special birthday treat, we are collecting a dozen of his short, and some very short, stories for you today. All of them were selected from his collection, 51 Tales, published in 1915. So let's get started, shall we? Part the first includes the following, the true story of the hare and the tortoise, chosen by forum moderator Talia for its rather dark interpretation of a fable generally considered benign and read to you by the beloved and inestimable Wilson Fowley. Setsu Uzume chose The Sphinx at Giza, noting that she loved the sense of doom and futility and the juxtaposition of eternal forces with finite human experience, and also that the story speaks to the artist's experience, trying to capture something eternal in mediums as finite as smeared oils and chicken scratch. Setsu also reads the story for us. Graham chose and narrates The Song of the Blackbird, being particularly attracted to the subtlety of the story sense of what is new and what is new again. Raj Paul's chosen story, The Tomb of Pan, closes out this first section, Raj notes that he chose this one because there is something beautiful to him about the holiness of joy and hedonism and humanity, somehow managing to survive the holiness of sobriety and rigidity and ideology. It is read to you by our super talented friend, Eric Luke. So, sit back, have a slice of metaphorical cake, and enjoy these stories.
1: THE TRUE HISTORY OF THE hare AND THE TORTOISE For a long time there was doubt with acrimony among the beasts as to whether the hare or the tortoise could run the swifter. Some said the hare was the swifter of the two, because he had such long ears, and others said the tortoise was the swifter, because any one whose shell was so hard as that should be able to run hard too and lo, the forces of estrangement and disorder perpetually postponed a decisive contest. But when there was nearly war among the beasts, at last an arrangement was come to, and it was decided that the hare and the tortoise should run a race of five hundred yards, so that all should see who was right. "'Ridiculous nonsense,' said the hare, and it was all his backers could do to get him to run. "'The contest is most welcome to me,' "'said the tortoise. "'I shall not shirk it.' "'Oh, how his backers cheered!' "'Feeling ran high on the day of the race. "'The goose rushed at the fox and nearly pecked him. "'Both sides spoke loudly of the approaching victory "'up to the very moment of the race. "'I am absolutely confident of success,' said the tortoise. "'But the hare said nothing. "'He looked bored and cross.' Some of his supporters deserted him then and went to the other side, who were loudly cheering the tortoise's inspiriting words. But many remained with the hare. We shall not be disappointed in him, they said. A beast with such long ears is bound to win. Run hard, said the supporters of the tortoise. And run hard became a kind of catchphrase which everybody repeated to one another. Hard shell and hard living, that's what the country wants. "'Run hard,' they said. "'And these words were never uttered, but multitudes cheered from their hearts. "'Then they were off, and suddenly there was a hush. "'The hare dashed off for about a hundred yards. "'Then he looked round to see where his rival was. "'It is rather absurd,' he said, to race with a tortoise. "'And he sat down and scratched himself. "'Run hard! "'Run hard!' shouted some. "'Let him rest!' "'shouted others, and let him rest became a catchphrase too. "'And after a while his rival drew near to him. "'There comes that damned tortoise,' said the hare. "'And he got up and ran as hard as could be, "'so that he should not let the tortoise beat him. "'Those ears will win,' said his friends. "'Those ears will win and establish upon an incontestable footing "'the truth of what we have said.' "'and some of them turned to the backers of the tortoise and said, "'What about your beast now?' "'Run hard,' they replied. "'Run hard.' "'The hare ran on for nearly three hundred yards, "'nearly, in fact, as far as the winning post, "'when it suddenly struck him. "'What a fool!' he looked, running races with a tortoise. who was nowhere in sight. "'And he sat down again and scratched. "'Run hard! Run hard!' said the crowd, and let him rest. "'Whatever is the use of it?' said the hare, and this time he stopped for good. Some say he slept. There was desperate excitement for an hour or two, and then the tortoise won. "'Run hard! run hard!' shouted his backers. "'Hard shell and hard living, that's what has done it.' And then they asked the tortoise what his achievement signified, and he went and asked the turtle. And the turtle said, "'It is a glorious victory for the forces of swiftness.' And then the tortoise repeated it to his friends, and all the beasts said nothing else for years, and even to this day, a glorious victory for the forces of swiftness is a catchphrase in the house of the snail. And the reason that this version of the race is not widely known is that very few of those that witnessed it survived the great forest fire that happened shortly after. It came up over the weald by night with a great wind. The hare and the tortoise and a very few of the beasts saw it far off from a high bare hill that was at the edge of the trees, and they hurriedly called a meeting to decide what messenger they should send to warn the beasts in the forest. They sent the tortoise.
2: The Sphinx at Giza I saw the other day the Sphinx's painted face. She had painted her face in order to ogle time, and he has spared no other painted faces in all the world but hers. Delilah was younger than she, and Delilah is dust. Time hath loved nothing but this worthless painted face. I do not care that she is ugly, nor that she has painted her face, "'so that she only lure his secret from time. "'Time dallies like a fool at her feet "'when he should be smiting cities. "'Time never wearies of her silly smile. "'There are temples all about her "'that he has forgotten to spoil. "'I saw an old man go by, "'and time never touched him. "'Time that has carried away "'the seven gates of Thebes. "'She has tried to bind him "'with ropes of eternal sand.' She had hoped to oppress him with the pyramids. He lies there in the sand with his foolish hair all spread about her paws. If she ever finds his secret, we will put out his eyes so that he shall find no more our beautiful things. There are lovely gates in Florence that I fear he will carry away. We have tried to bind him with song and with old customs, but they only held him for a little while, and he has always smitten us, "'and mocked us. "'When he is blind, he shall dance to us and make sport. "'Great, clumsy times shall stumble and dance, "'who liked to kill little children "'and can hurt even the daisies no longer. "'Then shall our children laugh at him "'who slew Babylon's winged bulls "'and smote great numbers of the gods and fairies "'when he is shorn of his hours and his years.' We will shut him up in the pyramid of Cheops, in the great chamber where the sarcophagus is. Thence we will lead him out when we give our feasts. He shall ripen our corn for us, and do menial work. We will kiss thy painted face, O Sphinx, if thou wilt betray to us time. And yet I fear that in his ultimate anguish he may take hold blindly of the world and the moon, and slowly pulled down upon him the house of men.
3: The Song of the Blackbird As the poet passed the thorn tree, the blackbird sang. "'However do you do it?' the poet said, for he knew bird language. "'It was like this,' said the blackbird.' It really was the most extraordinary thing. I made that song last spring. It came to me all of a sudden. There was the most beautiful she-blackbird that the world has ever seen. Her eyes were blacker than lakes are at night. Her feathers were blacker than the night itself. And nothing was as yellow as her beak. She could fly much faster than the lightning. She was not an ordinary she-blackbird. There has never been any other like her at all. I did not dare go near her, because she was so wonderful. One day last spring, when it got warm again, it had been cold, we ate berries, things were quite different then, but spring came and it got warm. One day I was thinking how wonderful she was, and it seemed so extraordinary to think that I should ever have seen her, the only really wonderful she-blackbird in the world, that I opened my beak to give a shout, and then this song came and there had never been anything like it before, and luckily I remembered it, the very song that I sang just now. But what is so extraordinary, the most amazing occurrence of that marvellous day, was that no sooner had I sung the song than that very bird, the most wonderful she-black bird in the world, flew right up to me and sat quite close to me on the same tree. I never remember such wonderful times as those. Yes, the song came in a moment, and as I was saying. And an old wanderer walking with a stick came by, and the blackbird flew away, and the poet told the old man the blackbird's wonderful story. That song knew, said the wanderer, not a bit of it. God made it years ago. All the blackbirds used to sing it when I was young. It was new then.
4: THE TOMB OF PAN Seeing, they said, that old-time Pan is dead, let us now make a tomb for him and a monument, that the dreadful worship of long ago may be remembered and avoided by all. So said the people of the Enlightened Lands, and they built a white and mighty tomb of marble. Slowly it rose under the hands of the builders, and longer every evening after sunset it gleamed with rays of the departed sun. And many mourned for Pan while the builders built, many reviled him. Some called the builders to cease and to weep for Pan, and others called them to leave no memorial at all of so infamous a god. But the builders built on steadily. And one day all was finished. And the tomb stood there like a steep sea cliff, and Pan was carved thereon with humbled head, and the feet of angels pressed upon his neck. And when the tomb was finished, the sun had already set, but the afterglow was rosy on the huge bulk of Pan. And presently all the enlightened people came, and saw the tomb, and remembered Pan who was dead, and all deplored him and his wicked age. But a few wept apart because of the death of Pan. But at evening, as he stole out of the forest and slipped like a shadow softly along the hills, Pan saw the tomb and laughed.
5: Hello everyone, M.K. Hobson here to wish PodCastle a happy birthday and to serve as your oral psychopomp, ferrying you across the river of silence to the admittedly somewhat unsafe harbor represented by our next four stories. Now, in the notes Peter sent me, he said he'd arranged these stories in a kind of Chronological order from the beginning of time until, one can only assume, the inevitable heat death of the universe. This upcoming section he called historical. But having read through all the other stories, I don't think that's quite right. The word I would use, honestly, is worldly. For me, even more so than the other stories in today's episode, these four explore the space where transcendence intersects with. Human Folly, and Delusion. The section includes A Moral Little Tale, selected and read by Matt Dovey, Death and the Orange, selected and read by Aidan Doyle, Alone the Immortals, selected and read by Khalida Muhammad Ali, and Time and the Tradesman, selected by Crystal Claxton and read by Cheyenne Wright. Now while all of the editors provided a note about their selection, and I'm assuming Peter will share these with you perhaps in the episode description or something, one of these notes in particular stood out for me. It was Matt's comment on his selection of A Moral Little Tale, which offers an interesting lens through which this whole group might be considered. He wrote, I don't believe personal happiness can ever be an evil. There's an infinite pool of love to go around if only we'd let each other share in it without judgment. Now, myself, I adore that sentiment. I wonder, however, if Dunsany would agree with it. Think about that as you continue to listen to these tales
6: and see what you think. A Moral Little Tale There was once an earnest Puritan who held it wrong to dance, and for his principles he laboured hard. His was a zealous life. And there loved him all of those who hated the dance, and those that loved the dance respected him too. They said, He is a pure good man, and acts according to his lights. He did much to discourage dancing, and helped to close several Sunday entertainments. Some kinds of poetry, he said, he liked, but not the fanciful kind, as that might corrupt the thoughts of the very young. He always dressed in black. He was quite interested in morality, and was quite sincere, and there grew to be much respect on earth for his honest face and his flowing pure white beard. One night the devil appeared unto him in a dream, and said, "'Well done!' "'Avaunt!' said that earnest man. "'No, no, friend!' said the devil. "'Dare not to call me friend!' he answered bravely. "'Come, come, friend!' said the devil. "'Have you not put apart the couples that would dance?' "'Have you not checked their laughter and their accursed mirth? "'Have you not worn my livery of black? "'Oh, friend, friend, you do not know what a detestable thing it is to sit in hell "'and hear people being happy and singing in theatres and singing in the fields "'and whispering after dancers under the moon.' "'And he fell to cursing fearfully. "'It is you,' said the Puritan, "'that put into their hearts the evil desire to dance. "'And black is God's own livery, not yours.' And the devil laughed contemptuously, and spoke. "'He only made the silly colours, he said, "'and useless thorns on hill-slopes facing south, "'and butterflies flapping along them as soon as the sun rose high, "'and foolish maidens coming out to dance, "'and the warm mad west wind. "'Worst of all, that pernicious influence, love.' "'And when the devil said that God made love, "'that earnest man sat up in bed and shouted, "'Blasphemy! Blasphemy!' "'It's true,' said the devil.' "'It isn't I that send the village fools muttering and whispering two by two in the woods when the harvest moon is high. "'It's as much as I can bear even to see them dancing.' "'Then,' said the man, "'I have mistaken right for wrong. "'But as soon as I wake I will fight you yet.' "'Oh, no, you don't,' said the devil. "'You don't wake up out of this sleep.' "'And somewhere far away, "'Hell's black steel doors were opened, "'and arm in arm those two were drawn within.' And the door shut behind them and still they went arm in arm, trudging further and further into the deeps of hell. And it was that Puritan's punishment to know that those that he cared for on earth would do evil as he had done.
7: Death and the Orange Two dark young men in a foreign southern land sat at a restaurant table with one woman. And on the woman's plate was a small orange which had an evil laughter in its heart. And both of the men would be looking at the woman all the time and they ate little and they drank much. And the woman was smiling equally at each. Then the small orange that had the laughter in its heart Rolled slowly off the plate onto the floor. And the dark young men both sought for it at once. And they met suddenly beneath the table, and soon they were speaking swift words to one another. And a horror and an impotence came over the reason of each as she sat helpless at the back of the mind. And the heart of the orange laughed, and the woman went on smiling. And death, who was sitting at another table, tete-a-tete with an old man, rose and came over to listen to the quarrel.
8: Alone, the Immortals I heard it said that very far away from here, on the wrong side of the deserts of Cathay, and in a country dedicated to winter, are all the years that are dead. And there a certain valley shuts them in and hides them, as rumor has it, from the world, but not from the side of the moon, nor from those that dream in its rays. And I said, I will go from here by ways of dream, and I will come to that valley, and enter in and mourn there for the good years that are dead. And I said, I will take a wreath, a wreath of mourning, and lay it at their feet in token of my sorrow for their dooms. And when I sought out the other flowers among the flowers for my wreath of mourning, the lily looked too large, and the laurel looked too solemn, and I found nothing frail enough nor slender to serve as an offering to the years that were dead. And at last I made a slender wreath of daisies, in the manner that I had seen them made in one of the years that is dead. This, said I, is scarce less fragile or less frail than one of those delicate forgotten years. Then I took my wreath in my hand and went from here. And when I had come by paths of mystery to that romantic land, where a valley that rumour told of lies close to the mountainous moon, I searched among the grass for those poor slight years for whom I brought my sorrow and my wreath. And when I found there nothing in the grass, I said, Time has shattered them, and swept them away, and left not even any faint remains. But looking upwards in the blaze of the moon i suddenly saw colossi sitting near and towering up and blotting out the stars and filling the night with blackness and at those idols feet i saw praying and making obeisance kings and the days are and all times and all cities and all nations and all their gods neither the smoke of incense nor of the sacrifice burning reached those colossal heads, they sat there not to be measured, not to be overthrown, not to be worn away. I said, Who are those? One answered, Alone the immortals. And I said sadly, I came not to see dread gods. But I came to shed my tears and to offer flowers at the feet of certain little years that are dead and may not come again. He answered me, These are the years that are dead, alone the immortals. All years to be are their children. They fashioned their smiles and their laughter, all earthly kings they have crowned, all gods they have created. All the events to be flown down from their feet like a river, and the worlds are flying pebbles that they have already thrown. And time and all his centuries behind him kneel there and bended, crust, in token of vassalage at their potent feet. And when I heard this, I turned away with my wreath and went back to my own land comforted.
3: Time and the Tradesman. Once time, as he prowled the world, his hair grey not with weakness, but with dust of the ruin of cities, came to a furniture shop and entered the antique department. And there he saw a man darkening the wood of a chair with dye, and beating it with chains, and making imitation wormholes in it. And when time saw another doing his work, he stood by him a while and looked on critically. And at last he said, That is not how I work. And he turned the man's hair white, and bent his back and put some furrows in his cunning little face, then turned and strode away, for a mighty city that was weary and sick, and too long had troubled the
9: fields, was sore in need of him.
10: and welcome back again hey this is dave thompson former host and editor of podcastle now wandering the time stream and visiting all the alternate earths in the multiverse a guy can in a single lifetime must figure out how to acquire more lifetimes there's still so much to see note ask Graham or al pretty sure one of them must have an answer And I'm also pretty sure I'm transmitting this recording to you from another dimension. Or maybe that's the lack of caffeine and not enough sleep. Well, we hope you're enjoying this fantastic PodCastle birthday special. We have several more stories coming up from old Eddie Plunkett. He wrote some deliciously melancholy stories, didn't he? Like that one Kalita read, Where All Those Years Are Dying. Anybody else out there thinking, that's right, 2016, suck it. Die. Die in a fire no no let it go dave we're three months into 2017 and it's so much oh my god let it go no anyway up next we've got some wonderful stories featuring the voice talents of tina Connolly, steve anderson jen albert and amal el Motar. so sit back relax squeeze the evil laughter out of that orange and enjoy the stories And happy birthday, PodCastle. Go ahead and blow out that candle while I slice up the cake.
11: The Sphinx in Thebes, Massachusetts. There was a woman in a steel-built city who had all that money could buy. She had gold and dividends and trains and houses, and she had pets to play with. But she had no Sphinx. So she besought them to bring her a live sphinx, and therefore they went to the menageries, and then to the forests and the desert places, and yet could find no sphinx. And she would have been content with a little lion, but that one was already owned by a woman she knew, so they had to search the world again for a sphinx. And still there was none. But they were not men that it is easy to baffle, and at last they found a sphinx. "'in a desert, at evening, "'watching a ruined temple whose god she had eaten hundreds of years ago when her hunger was on her. "'And they cast chains on her, "'who was still with an ominous stillness, "'and took her westwards with them and brought her home. "'And so the Sphinx came to the steel-built city, "'and the woman was very glad that she owned a Sphinx, "'but the Sphinx stared long into her eyes one day "'and softly asked a riddle of the woman.' And the woman could not answer, and she died. And the sphinx is silent again, and none knows what she will do.
9: THE RETURN OF SONG The swans are singing again, said to one another the gods. And looking downwards for my dreams had taken me to some fair and far valhalla i saw below me an iridescent bubble not greatly larger than a star shine beautifully but faintly and up and up from it looking larger and larger came a flock of white innumerable swans singing and singing and singing till it seemed as though even the gods were wild ships swimming in music What is it, I said, to one that was humble among the gods? Only a world has ended, he said to me, and the swans are coming back to the gods, returning the gift of song. A whole world dead, I said. Dead, said he that was humble among the gods. The worlds are not forever. Only song is immortal. Look, look, he said. There will be a new one soon. And I looked and saw the larks. Going down from the gods.
12: Charon. Charon leaned forward and rode. All things were one with his weariness. It was not with him a matter of years or of centuries, but of wide floods of time, and an old heaviness and a pain in the arms that had become for him a part of the scheme that the gods had made, and was of a peace with eternity. If the gods had even sent him a contrary wind, it would have divided all time in his memory into two equal slabs. So gray were all the things always where he was, that if any radiance lingered a moment among the dead, on the face of such a queen, perhaps as Cleopatra, his eyes could not have perceived it. It was strange that the dead nowadays were coming in such numbers. They were coming in thousands, where they used to come in fifties. It was neither Charon's duty nor his want to ponder in his gray soul why these things might be. Charon leaned forward and rode. Then no one came for a while. It was not usual for the gods to send no one down from earth for such a space. But the gods knew best. Then one man came alone. And the little shade sat shivering on a lonely bench, and the great boat pushed off. Only one passenger, the gods knew best, and great and weary Charon rowed on and on beside the little silent shivering ghost. And the sound of the river was like a mighty sigh that grief in the beginning had sighed among her sisters, and that could not die like the echoes of human sorrow failing on earthly hills, but was as old as time And the pain in Charon's arms then the boat from the slow gray river loomed up the coast of Dis and the little silent shade still shivering stepped ashore and Charon turned the boat to go wearily back to the world then the little shadow spoke that had been a man I am the last he said no one had ever made Charon smile before No one had ever made him weep.
13: After the Fire When that happened, which had been so long in happening, and the world hid a black, uncharted star, certain tremendous creatures out of some other world came peering among the cinders to see if there were anything there "'that it were worthwhile to remember. "'They spoke of the great things "'that the world was known to have had. "'They mentioned the mammoth. "'And presently they saw humanity's temples, "'silent and windowless, staring like empty skulls. "'Some great thing has been here,' one said, "'in these huge places. "'It was the mammoth,' said one. Something greater than she, said another. And then they found that the greatest thing in the world had been the dreams of humanity.
0: And welcome back. These stories were published just over a hundred years ago, and though Dunsany's turn of phrase sometimes feels dated, they remain remarkably potent examinations of human frailties, foibles, and dreams. Much, indeed, has changed over the last century. Our technologies, our political landscape, our global ecology. But what it means to be human, well, that song, as they say, remains the same. Still, our successes and our growth are things to be treasured, as PodCastle turns nine today, we hope you will be with us to celebrate the power of our dreams and our stories for many years to come. Feedback this week is for episode 453, A Spirited Education, by Tony Pie. This one hasn't had much response yet, but Vranakat felt that the story was, quote, an exciting and entertaining story where a doctor was the hero, not a warrior as well as appreciating Podcastle's continuing dedication to presenting stories from a range of cultures. Trish M., quote, enjoyed the story quite a lot, particularly the bit about how he couldn't form a tiger avatar never having actually seen a tiger, but he was able to turn his memory of lion dancers into his champions, supplemented by his father's verses and everyone joining him in chanting them. It was very satisfying. Thank you, Veronica and Trish M., for those comments. What did you think of that story, or this story, or even our very first episode? We hope you will share your thoughts with us at forum.escapeartists.net. You can also engage with us on Facebook, and our Twitter account is at podcastle underscore org. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, forum moderators Talia and Asikat, associate editors Stephen Caps, Crystal Claxton, Matt Dovey, Aiden Doyle, Raj Paul, Senior Hardwick, Arun Jiwa, Troy Wiggins, and Eleanor Wood, Assistant Editor Setsu Uzume, Co-editors Jen Halbert and Khalida Muhammad Ali, and myself, your audio producer and this week's host and editor, Peter Wood. We thank you for letting us spin you some stories. I'd also like to extend a personal thanks to Jen and Graham for letting me edit this episode and everyone involved with making it happen. We'll be back in just a few days with our regularly scheduled episode. Until then, dance brave and be kind. Podcastle is released under an attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 international license. Share our episodes as much as you'd like, but don't change or sell them. Our music is by Shiva in Exile, and you can find them at shiva-in-exile.com. We could not do what we do without the support of our listeners. If you can donate, please do. One-time donations are great, but regular subscriptions are a huge help in planning our budgets, paying our authors and narrators, and keeping up with hosting and serving costs. You can set up a monthly subscription for as little as $2. Just go to the podcastle.org site and look for the Support Us button. If you already support us or cannot afford to give financially, please help spread the word about us through your various networks in both your digital and analog worlds. Today's quote, in keeping with today's theme, comes from Lord Dunsany, who wrote that a man, and here I'm going to replace that with a person, A person is a very small thing, and the night is very large and full of wonders.